This is Archive Atlanta, episode 240, Buttermilk Bottom and the Civic Center. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week we're talking about two pieces of Atlanta history. One, a neighborhood wiped out by urban renewal, and the other, the showpiece Atlanta Civic Center that was built in its place. Over the course of Atlanta's history, the word slum has been tossed around many, many times. In its earliest decades as a city, we had Murals Row, Slabtown, Snake Nation, Hobo Hollow, Beaver Slide, Tight Squeeze, Humbug Square, and Buttermilk Bottom. By 1881, there was Shermantown, Ellis Row, Hades Half Acre, Fuller's Row, Campbell's Block, Happy Hollow, Bone Alley, and Pigtail Alley. And no, I have not made any of these up. At the simplest level, these names were describing neighborhoods of Atlanta's poorest citizens, who were, depending on the specific area, either unhoused or living in ramshackle housing. If you've listened to other episodes, I've talked about this, and the pattern is always the same. We have taxpaying citizens, don't invest in their infrastructure, force them into low-lying areas, and then decades later determine that their neighborhood is a public health hazard and we remove them through eminent domain. This is the same story you'll hear today in Buttermilk Bottom and the subsequent Civic Center development. So I must preface this episode with an explanation of how hard it is to accurately research any kind of low-income community, especially something that is called a slum, and it's mostly written about in white press. There's just kind of no detailed history of how Buttermilk Bottom came to be as a neighborhood. There are a couple of stories that I will share, as you will hear. They're generally terrible because that's also the stories that are going to come out of a neighborhood like this are going to be sensationalized, um, especially when you see the city working towards urban renewal acceptance. You're just going to talk about the bad stuff. The name Buttermilk Bottom was used to describe a part of downtown back in the 1850s, but by the turn of the 20th century, we're talking about a different area bordered by Piedmont Avenue on the west, North Avenue on the north, Boulevard along the east, and Forest, which is today uh, Ralph McGill, on the south. Now today, this is considered the very edge of the Old Fourth Ward neighborhood. Following the Great Fire of 1917, which I talked about in episode 33, most white families who lost their homes moved to other parts of the city. Between 1910 and 1930, the population of Fulton County doubled to over 318,000 people, with the African-American population going from about 57,000 to 101,000. I also did an episode about racialized zoning, but this area in the current Old Fourth Ward was really ground zero for these legalized attempts at housing discrimination. Buttermilk Bottom itself was in a topographical low area, it still is, uh, and it often dealt with flooding. I found this article from 1926 when the newspaper detailed what they called it called a cloudburst, like a really severe quick rainstorm that brought in such heavy rains and such flooding across the city. By the way, does any of this sound familiar? This literally happened a couple months ago here in Atlanta. Um, In this event, though, an eight-year-old boy was swept into a storm sewer and 15 black residents of Buttermilk Bottom were actually rescued by fire who had a swim in 10 feet of water. Similar to other Black neighborhoods that I've covered in past episodes, the bottom also dealt with the Klan, um, random youths driving through, and just kind of racial intimidation. This was a common story, like I said, in Linwood Park, it would happen. It would happen in Macedonia or Bagley Park as well. 
1936, an African-American man named Thomas Finch was shot and killed by an Atlanta police officer who later became a leader of the Klan. Um, this happened on the night of September 12th at 3 a.m. Five white men, two of them were police officers, knocked on the door of the Finch residence in Buttermilk Bottom. Um, his father opened the door. The officer said, you know, we want to see your son. Finch got dressed. He went with the men. And about an hour later, his beaten and shot body was dumped on the steps of Grady Hospital. He did not make it out of surgery. And so this has actually covered the Fulton County Remembrance Coalition, um, has honored Thomas Finch, and the story has been told in a few things. I think there's actually a podcast about it. So again, like I said, I'm highlighting kind of the darkest moments of this neighborhood's past, but I do always want people to realize, and I make sure that I realize that these were vibrant communities and they had churches and they had families and they had stores and businesses and schools and the full range of human emotions. After World War II, Atlanta's black population reached 145,000 residents, which reflected 37% of the city's total population. Legally, they were only allowed to live in 10% of Atlanta's residentially zoned land. Talked about this in the Collier Heights episode. So needless to say, this brings in severe overcrowding. And in poor communities, structures were often shoddy or unsafe. There was still no running water and no sewers in Buttermilk Bottom. Um, so as early as 1939, you have city councilmen introducing resolutions urging the Atlanta Housing Authority to consider slum clearance for Buttermilk Bottoms. Uh, there was a councilman, White, I can't remember his first name, but they would go on these tours. They would take like higher class people to drive through the slums to show them how terrible it was. And so Councilman White is like, oh my gosh, we took these women the other day and one of them actually fainted from the smell. It was so terrible. In 1949, the Metropolitan Planning Commission began work on eliminating slums, which they did by directing city council to create redevelopment plans and then try to obtain funds from the Federal Housing Act of 1949. Um, this housing act is also called the Wagner-Ellender Taft Act basically expanded the availability of FHA mortgages. It defined um, decent housing, which they described as the basic right for those living in the inner city to you know, have a safe place to live. They authorized uh, federal grants and loans for cities to clear slums and blighted areas. Uh, and they required that any kind of local agencies ensured that if they were going to remove people from their home, they had a, an adequate substitute place to move them to. The city of Atlanta established an urban renewal department on July 1st, 1957, and their ordinance stated, quote, the functions of this department shall be to study the urban renewal requirements of the city of Atlanta to facilitate timely coordination and orderly development of urban renewal plans, projects, and other related activities throughout the city, end quote. By July of 1959, we had created the Housing and Slum Clearance Code of the City of Atlanta. Um, and this new department had the power to have a chief inspector. They had eight field inspectors and two clerks. And their role was really to identify and review the city's slum conditions. Now, I'm kind of going into a deep dive here, but an episode solely on urban renewal is coming one day, I promise. But this department essentially came back with five urban renewal areas that they recommended. In total, this is about 1,300 acres, and all of this was going to cost $21 million. In these identified areas, there's almost 3,000 residential structures that were going to be demolished. 1,500 of them were going to be rehabilitated, rehabilitated, and that meant moving about 4,500 families. So the 160-acre tract that was specifically Buttermilk Bottoms, that had about 1,543 houses targeted for demolition. 
Now, nothing really happens until the 1960s. So in May of 1963, Buttermilk Bottom was hit with another catastrophic rain event, which flooded almost everything. Uh, The Red Cross had set up really temporary kind of mobile facility to assist neighbors. Um, People lost their homes. People lost all their belongings. And so by August of that year, the Board of Aldermen approved $800,000 for a Butler Street trunk sewer to relieve flooding conditions. The papers actually say this was overdue and that the new sewer would tie into future general redevelopment. So again, this begs the question, and I asked this in the Bagley Park episode, why would the city wait until 1963 to put in a sewer when the community had been dealing with flooding since its inception? And to quote city officials, we have an answer. Instead of being a drain on services, new development brings taxes. So why would we improve something when there is no economic return? Instead, they put in a sewer with the plans that this area was going to be urban renewaled and be something new. Now, what is that new thing? By December of 1963, the city of Atlanta, led by Mayor Ivan Allen, had been debating the location of a new city auditorium. They formed something called the Citizens Auditorium Advisory Committee, whose stated purpose was to advise on the architect, engineer, and design and recommend a quote-unquote proper site. So Mayor Allen's first choice was actually the Washington Rawson Urban Renewal Development Area. That's basically, today it's the downtown connector. It's right next to Summerhill. But they were also considering the Buttermilk Bottom Tract and then the current auditorium site, which is today, it's downtown. It's a GSU building, but it's right next to Heard Park. Now, to pay for all of this, um, they, of course, were going to do some federal funds for urban renewal, some clearance, but Atlantans had also approved a $9 million bond referendum to build this auditorium. Atlantans were convinced by these proponents and civic boosters that we needed to have a new auditorium. If you look across, actually, cities in the southeast, everybody was doing the same thing. By March of 1964, the committee had chosen the 70-acre track on the fringe of the Buttermilk Bottom site, and it had selected Robert & Co. as architect. Now, the main architect that's really credited with the design was Harold Montague of Robert & Co. The plans initially drawn up called for an auditorium with about 5,000 seats and around 10,000 feet of exposition hall space. And so while they had decided on the land, it hadn't exactly been acquired yet. And that's where it gets interesting. So federal approval of the urban renewal area came in April of 1964. And of this 106 acres, this new municipal auditorium was set up to go on only a 25 acre portion. Now, this process was not without obstacles. There is, of course, buying people out of their property, you know, relocating them. And that's kind of, again, a story for another episode. But one of the biggest dramas in the papers at the time was at the C.W. Hill Elementary School, which served about 800 students, all of them black, most of them from Buttermilk Bottom, was located on this 25 acres. And so it had to go. And at first, the community was like, okay, fine, you know, we're going to get a new school until they learned that no, 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 the children were going to be moved into portable classroom trailers. This caused outrage, protests from civil rights leaders. Uh, Mayor Allen jumps in. So his first thing is he's going to stall construction until they can figure it out. That ends up being too costly. Uh, Basically, I think he calculated like a million dollars of wasted money if they pause construction. And so instead, he promises that they will only be in temporary learning quarters for one year. 
Now, coincidentally, if you had listened to my Atlanta Public Schools episode, Atlanta was on a year-by-year integration plan, which a lot of people don't realize. So I think it's 1961. I'm going to forget my dates here. But um, it was 12th grade one year, 11th grade, then 10th grade. It was in right after this controversy that the city of Atlanta scraps the year-by-year plan and just goes to full integration. Coincidence? I don't know. So during all of this, you know, um, getting the land or announcing it and the plans, at this point in Atlanta's history, there had been other large-scale civic developments announced. And this included a new stadium, which would be built, again, the old Brave Stadium, uh, two new hotels, and a cultural center, which we, we now call the Woodruff Arts Center. And so city planners express that every city needs three places. They need a concert performing arts hall with a small capacity and good acoustics. They need a big auditorium exposition hall, and they need a sports arena. And what other cities had been attempting to do unsuccessfully is build one place for all three. And they really pointed to Nashville. Nashville had built this new coliseum. It was way too big for, let's say, the symphony, but the conventions they were attracting were actually overloading local hotel capacity. So Atlanta's like, hey, hey, let's just pause for a second, you know, and make sure that the civic center plan is what we need it to be. By May of 1964, the plans were formally accepted for the auditorium, the exhibition hall, and they were going to connect it with a covered walkway. Construction was also a whole new saga. Between inclement weather, trade worker strikes, and supplier issues, building the Civic Center took well over two years. The exposition hall opened in July of 1967 and the auditorium finally in March of 1968. That in itself was fraught with rescheduling and cancellations. So basically like concerts, shows, operas, etc. They were planning for 1967 season. You know, we're going to debut here at the new Civic Center. And that kept not happening because of delays. So everything had to be rescheduled. And there was a lot of discussion about losing certain events. The newly christened Robert F. Maddox Auditorium, named for the mayor of Atlanta in 1909, who actually brought the city's first auditorium, opened to a black tie event of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. A week later, they held a public open house, and within months, the Civic Center became the home of practically every high school graduation ceremony. So that's something I learned um, pretty recently, is that if you were graduating high school in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, it was probably at the Civic Center. In May of 1969, the New York Metropolitan Opera moved from the Fox Theater to the Civic Center, which was a huge win. By 1970, the exposition convention business was booming so greatly that then-Mayor Sam Massell actually tried to push for an expansion. That never quite materialized because the Georgia Wool Congress Center opened in 1976. In 1982, two Atlanta women began the pursuit for an Atlanta Science Museum, and in 1988, the Science and Technology Museum of Atlanta or Sidetrack, opened in 96,000 square feet of the Civic Center Exposition Hall, which was actually donated by the city of Atlanta. And before you send me messages or emails, I promise I'm going to do an episode on Sidetrack. I have never actually gotten so many messages about this place and how many people want me to do an episode. And so I, uh, I understand and it is on my list. It is not possible to list all of the musical acts or trade shows or conventions that the Civic Center has hosted, but it was home to 19 seasons of the Metropolitan Opera, 
21 seasons of Theater of the Stars, six seasons of The Nutcracker, and five for the Atlanta Opera. In 2001, the center was undergoing a $2 million renovation, and then Mayor Bill Campbell suggested renaming the Atlanta Civic Center for Beaufoulet Jones. Jones was an Atlantan, Emory professor, dean, and eventually vice president. He had worked in the Kennedy administration, and he served on the Woodruff Foundation board. The Beaufoulet Jones Civic Center stayed open until October of 2014. In 2017, the city sold the development to the Atlanta Housing Authority, and it has been several years of hope and despair as numerous proposals have come and gone. The most recent news is that a proposal for redevelopment is in the works and that the plan would keep and restore the auditorium. I got to take a very special tour last September. The interiors in there are stunning, and I'm really excited about Atlanta keeping one of its iconic buildings instead of demolishing it. And this is also a very personal funny story. So not being kind of OG Atlantan, I don't always have connections to places the way that a lot of people do, like Sidetrack, for example. Um, And I always kind of feel like a little bit jealous of people that get to, oh yeah, I remember going there, you know, and I have that about my own hometown. But my very first concert in Atlanta was at the Civic Center. Keith Sweat, Johnny Gill, After 7, and Silk perform at the Civic Center. And it wasn't until years later that I was kind of remembering like where we parked and where we walked. And I was like, oh yeah, that was that was definitely the Civic Center. So I'm like proud to kind of have my own little connection story to this. And like I said, being inside of it and seeing all the material and the interiors, it truly is stunning. So there you have it, the story of Buttermilk Bottom and the Civic Center. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to the podcast. There's also a Patreon link in the show notes if you'd like to support the work. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.